Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. Your phone calls and your emails are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk about Bill Gates a bit. I don't much like Bill Gates, and it's not just his software or his software company. I think the guy is a little bit on the strange side, and we've talked about this before. The fact that he remained an associate of the late Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted child molester, the man who should have gone to prison for a long, long time for obtaining sex from underage girls and providing underage girls to his friends for sexual favors. Okay, this is just, the guy's bad. I mean, Epstein was bad. And Gates stayed associated with him even after he knew about that. And in fact, you I think you've probably heard Bill Gates and his wife Melinda have split. And one of the issues she brings up is not just Bill's weird relationship with his former girlfriend, who he insisted on spending a week with every year, even after he'd been married to his wife for decades. I can guarantee you that if I went to Tina Larson to say, hey, I've got this old girlfriend, and I'd like to fly to the other side of the country and spend a week with her, I promise nothing is going on. That's a non-starter, all day long and twice on Sunday. So Gates is a weird character. Um, but some of his, well, some of the things he gets the most accolades for are his involvement in, you know, trying to get rid of malaria and going after AIDS and things like that that are really difficult to um, to criticize because they're, they're worthy efforts if that's what they are. But an awful lot of people have watched Gates, especially during COVID, and have wondered about his involvement in decision-making about vaccines. And I want to play a couple of sound bites for you that we found just the other day. They've, they've not been uh, seen in public, I think, and uh, ever, um, but they were played. And, uh, and I thought I'd share them with you. Play the first one about Bill Gates. He, he didn't know Donald Trump, uh, even though they were both somewhat celebrities, before Trump became president. So take, play that one first. I never met Donald Trump uh, before he was elected. So I saw him at Trump Tower. You know, I said, hey, science and innovation is a great thing. You should be a leader who drives innovation. And that conversation was about a broad set of things in energy, in health, in education. You know, pick things you want to do that are big. HIV vaccine, you could, you know, accelerate that. Be associated with innovation. Now, that's a worthy goal. Be associated with innovation. The weird thing is this. I want to play this next soundbite for you because Gates has been very, very involved with vaccines, and he's made a lot of people very suspicious of what his real agenda is. But then when he talked to Donald Trump as president, because he said he didn't even know him before Trump became president, Trump brought up the idea because it is a concern in America, and we've actually talked about the subject for years on this program, years, way before the pandemic, about people who are suspicious of vaccines. And I think that some people have some legitimate criticisms of vaccines, and I think there are other things that are not as worthy. But Donald Trump brought up the idea to Bill Gates about having a special commission 
you know, since he was now president, uh, to look into people's concerns about vaccine. Now, the thing is, anything I talk about on the air, I try to share with you, where did you get that information, Lars? How did you come to that conclusion? What data did you use? And if somebody said to me, Lars, I'm going to take one of your arguments for anything we talk about on this show, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to research it, and I'm going to, I'm going to look into it and see if I can find out anything that might be suspicious about the conclusions that you've reached. I say, go for it. And if you find out that I've misstated a fact, if you find out that something I've said does not square up with the current science or the current information out there, go ahead, because I'd rather hear about it and say, okay, I'll take a second look at that, and I'll look at the information you brought me. When Donald Trump brought up the idea to Bill Gates, again, a guy who's involved in technology and innovation, where if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've got this great idea, a new kind of fuel, a new kind of electronic device, uh, something new, you would think, well, I've never thought of it before. I've always dismissed the idea before, but I'll take a look at it. What was Bill Gates' reaction? When he's talking to the president, the then president of the United States, and the president says, maybe we should have a commission look into some of the concerns that people have as vaccines. Because, well, I'll, I'll save my other comments for after. Listen to what Bill Gates tells him. Then the second time I saw him was uh, the March after that, uh, so March 2017 in the White House. In both of those two meetings, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, remember, science is about inquiry, all right? And there are plenty of scientists who've been told they were wrong. I mean, famously, there were some scientists that were forced to drink hemlock. Uh, there were there were people who were forced uh, out of academics altogether because they came up with ideas, and the rest of the the technology community at that time said that's a crazy idea. I think the Wright brothers were told they were crazy regularly. I I think that the people who said we can fly to the moon and land on the moon, land a man on the moon, were told they were crazy regularly. And so you wonder, a guy who's involved in technology like Bill Gates is asked, should we have a commission to look into the concerns that people have about vaccines? Now, there are two possible outcomes if you actually did a legitimate investigation. One is you would find good, solid evidence that the concerns are not true, that they're not well-founded. And in that case, you could come back and say, listen, We've looked into all the concerns, whether it's autism, whether it's thimerosal, uh, no matter what it is, you look into the concerns, you investigate, and you find out that the concerns were not true, were not well-founded. Or you could say, we're going to look into those things, and you find out that the concerns were very well-placed. Now, I don't know which one it would have ended up being, but for somebody like Gates, who, again, he works, he founded a company that created this software that has made him uh, the richest man on the planet. And he did that not by saying, let's not look into that, but by going out and looking into places where other people did not look. And doesn't it seem odd 
that a guy in his position would say, there are people in America with great concerns about vaccines. And of course, they've been highlighted a lot in the last two years. And that a guy like Bill Gates would say, no, 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 don't don't even look there. Don't investigate. Don't inquire. It's a dead end. Stay away from it. Very, very strange. You got the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. For months during COVID, the government paid people not to work. And now that businesses are getting back to normal or something close to it, uh, we have millions and millions of jobs that are unfilled. 11.4 million at the last estimate. Is that actually killing our economy? Because I don't think it goes without consequences when 11.4 million jobs are open and available and being offered by companies the problem is uh, the workers don't want to show up, some of them, and, and actually do the job. I thought we'd discuss that with Rachel Gresler, who's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lars. So we've got multiple problems going on. We've got massive inflation, massive energy problems. We've got a war going on in Ukraine that's chewing up tens of billions of dollars uh, that I guess Americans are going to pay. Uh, and then we've got, st- we've got uh, uh, supply chain problems and all these other things going on. But when companies say, we've got job openings, 11 million of them, and they don't get filled, that doesn't go without some kind of consequence when the job just can't be filled, or does it? No, it doesn't. And a lot of these things are actually related. The inflation that we're seeing today has a lot to do with those unfilled job openings. With 11.4 million job openings, there are 1.9 jobs available for every unemployed worker that's out there. We've simply never had a situation like this before. And as you pointed out, this all began with a lot of welfare without work incentives that encouraged people to stay home. And so the government was simultaneously restricting the supply of available workers while also spending trillions of dollars, most of which was simply printed by the Federal Reserve, and that was increasing the demand for things. And so it just created this huge gap. And when employers have to attract more workers, what do they do? They raise wages. But they're raising wages, and they're raising them without workers actually producing anything more, so they have to raise their prices. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this inflationary cycle. And We've heard the administration and others touting these strong wage gains, and it's true that the average worker is taking home $3,300 more per year. But when you factor the roughly $5,000 inflation tax into that, the average worker is $1,800 poorer. So we're really just in this bad cycle here, and the job openings um, you know, are really troubling going into the summer as well. I mean, Rachel, you and I have talked about this before. But there is something immediately that doesn't take an act of Congress literally or figuratively and doesn't take the president. There are a lot of states out there that could say, "Okay, we're going to have work requirements for Medicaid. We're going to have work requirements for food stamps. We're going to all of those are available under the law. And wouldn't that help to start bring uh, to bring about correction of that situation? It would, and, and we've seen some states that are, you know, looking for more action on that. And certainly when the states did take the initiative and say, hey, no more with these $600 per week unemployment insurance bonuses, it was just astonishing what happened in those states, the wage gains, the job gains that happened compared to the states that didn't keep them. And so there is something to be said there, but we just continue to see, you know, backwards policies coming out of the administration when they're trying to address things like inflation that are weighing on everyone. And their solution is to, quote, make things less expensive. 
by printing more money or by taxing other people, that's not actually making it less expensive. That's making it more expensive and making somebody else pay for it. Um, you know, and they're just really not addressing it in the way that it needs to be. And it's really pretty simple. You can look at what Jimmy Carter did when he had high inflation. He said, we've got to get rid of unnecessary regulations. We've got to reduce government spending. We've got to cut the size of the federal workforce. And we've got to get rid of these you know, annual deficits and just have a more effective federal government. That's not what we're hearing today, though. Well, and what I wonder about, Rachel, is... At some point, the, the largesse that was shoveled out by Capitol Hill for so long over the last uh, close to two years now, uh, that ends. And even the money people may have said, well, I have the stimulus check and, you know, I, I can only spend so much. And they, they stuffed it in savings accounts. I saw savings rates go up. But at some point, even that starts to run out. Do some of those people then say, OK, I, I guess I'll go get a job. There are lots of them available. Uh, or, or do you think we've found a whole new sector, sector of Americans who figured out a way to get by without actually working a job? You know, I hope the former will be true and that people will realize that they do need to work and that they'll experience the dignity and the value that comes with that. But I also have concerns that we've created this kind of culture in which work is not valued anymore and it's acceptable to not work. And we look at it, the numbers, you know, I'm seeing who is it that's not returning to work. And it's largely young Americans, you know, the 18 to 24-year-old group. And they're also not going to college. College enrollment has declined. And when you have at that very young age, when people are supposed to be launching out on their careers and climbing the ladder, and they're instead living at home with their parents and not working, that has lifelong consequences. And we're not going to know, you know, the long-term impacts of that for some time now, but it definitely is a concern. Well, and the other thing I wonder about, and Rachel, this will show the, the paucity of my economics knowledge, but when we're headed toward a recession, we've had one quarter of negative growth. If we have two, then for economists, that's the official definition of recession, right? But if, if energy prices go high enough and, and all of this stuff pushes us into a recession, do we stand the chance that those 11.4 million open jobs are going to snap back to close to zero or a very a, a much smaller number? And all of a sudden, the option that somebody sitting on the couch you know, watching YouTube or playing video games, all of a sudden realize, oh, I can get a job anytime. There's 11 million of them out there. All of a sudden realize, mm-hmm. no, no, while I wasn't watching, the economy went into a recession. Prices are still high. And those jobs that were sitting out there just waiting for me to come and say, I'd like a job and they'll just hand it to you. Because I've talked to some really desperate employers who say, I, I hire, you know, I basically have lowered my standards. I'll hire anybody who comes in. I've got to have workers may just say, well, now that we're in recession, I don't need those people anymore. So the mm-hmm. jobs aren't there. Is, is that where we're headed for this year, maybe? Yeah. We are, and we're already seeing signs of that. You know, productivity actually decreased significantly in the last quarter because the people who were hired weren't actually, you know, producing the same level of output. It was declining. Employers were having to invest to train those workers, and so they're not going to keep doing that. They're going to reduce compensation, or they're going to cut some of those jobs that are there now. And there are a lot of indicators that suggest that a recession is not far off. Um, And so for those workers who are out there and are sitting on the sidelines now, I mean, take those jobs while they're there because we don't know how long they'll be available. Well, and Rachel, I know politics isn't exactly in your lane, although you do deal with some of that. But I can foresee that if if that's what happens, if we go into a recession, the economy turns sour, uh, all those millions of jobs go away, 
that's going to give whatever Democrats are left after this November uh, every excuse in the world to say, well, that that means we have to shovel out more money, right? That's exactly what it'll do. The government's going to come in and save the day. But the problem is that now that we have spent an extra roughly $6 trillion on top of already existing deficits in the so-called name of fighting COVID-19, we're not in the same position that we were before. And we're growing increasingly close to what could be a fiscal crisis where there's just not the room to keep spending future taxpayers' dollars or keep inflating away the value of our money through the Fed printing it. And that and inflation or sorry, interest rates are up. So when the government goes to borrow money, maybe they'll be like the rest of us. They'll have to pay much higher rates. And do you happen to remember just one number I want to want you to leave the audience with? How much does America spend every year just to service the debt? Isn't something like 400 billion? Oh, I think it might be even more than that. Might be more than that. Might be where it's going to eventually consume our entire tax revenues. Absolutely. That's Rachel Gresler from the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, thanks very much. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And here I was, I'm still going to have a nice conversation with Dr. Keith Smith, who's a board-certified anesthesiology and co-founder of the Surgery Center in Oklahoma. Dr. Smith, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hard to compete with that. <laughs> it, 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 it is, but but I'll just say it's in the background. And we don't, I mean, other than the raid and breaking into a safe and the president has said this has never happened in American history. And the fact is the DOJ has been weaponized. With that in mind and knowing that we're watching, we're watching for new developments and new information about what's behind this, uh, let's have a conversation about the American health care system, if you don't mind, because you're the guy who knows. Yeah, I mean, just think about trusting your life. And no, nothing more important than, you know, the medical services you receive um, to a, you know, heavy, iron-fisted crew that, you know, breaks into someone's house. And I, I say that in all seriousness uh, because the involvement of government, which so many people seek as a solution to what ails this ridiculous system that we have, is really misguided because everything that's wrong with the medical system that we have, I hate to even call it a system, everything that's wrong with it is the result of federal intervention. So it's just not logical to reach out to them uh, to help because they always make it worse and they line the pockets of their pals. Well, Doc, if you'll forgive me, over the years I've always referred to as, do you really want to, if you are frustrated with the healthcare system now, would you like it run by the people who run Amtrak, the post office, and the DMV? And that's been my standard for comparison. And most people say, are you crazy? I said, no, the, the idea of trusting the same folks who mismanage to, to a, a multi-billion dollar degree, those three things. And there's a longer list if you want to go to it. Um, it would be just as crazy. But let's start with this. How is it that the system is broken? Because I think we have some of the best health care in the world. And most of the ratings that say, well, you know, the U.S. rates low is because we don't have universal health care. We don't have government funded health care. We don't have a one size fits all system for everyone, like all the socialist countries who are the majority of countries on planet Earth. And I'm glad we don't. Because from my point of view, and I don't have anything, I've got type 2 diabetes, but I'm handling that well. I don't have anything seriously wrong with me. But my impression from a distance is that even in, you know, friendly, warm, nice neighbor to the north, the the Canadians have a socialist health system that that kills people as part of the way it operates. 
Yeah, and a lot of people say, you know, the free market has failed um, in this industry. It's really never been tried, um, um, with the exception of prior to the 1960s when the federal government got involved and fouled everything up. Um, the reason that, I, and I agree with you, the best health care in the United States, uh, I mean, in the world, is in the United States, but it's sporadic. And that is a classic uh, problem when you see regulatory agencies jump in and government be involved. You have sporadic quality, but there are places where it is phenomenal. Um, the pricing is really an issue for a lot of people, and that, that is because of federal intervention. Um, so that you know, my, I, I always tell people that when I posted our website, all-inclusive surgical prices for everything you can imagine. In 2009, the first patients that arrived were Canadians, and they would tell us their stories. You know, I'm in a three-year, you know, waiting list for a hysterectomy, and I'm tired of getting blood transfusions because I'm bleeding so heavily, uh, waiting in line. And for $8,000, they could end their nightmare. The, the really astonishing thing was when I would try to sympathize with them and say anything critical of the Canadian system, they would get defensive. So it was almost like Stockholm Syndrome. They they have been immersed uh, in this really awful um, system that that basically rations care, and that's how they balance their budgets. They've been in well, it so long that they think that's that's normal. Well, when you ration care, you're going to inevitably kill people. Because if your doctor says, hey, you got some signs here, you should get checked by an oncologist, a cancer doctor. And you say, okay, I'll go see him. When? Six months from now, eight months from now. Well, what happens if the cancer already ripping and roaring by then? Well, then you're probably dead. And, and that's what they get. Whereas in this system, I have a father-in-law who went in for heart surgery. He went in, got diagnosed. They said, you need some more diagnostics, you know, an angiogram. They did it said, okay, you're going into surgery right now to fix this. Not because it was necessarily that urgent, but they saw the problem and said, we should fix this now. In Canada, my understanding is they, the government says, well, we have a goal to try to get everybody into a cardiologist within six months of diagnosis. And I thought, what happens? How many people die in the six months in the intervening period? And it's a, it's a number of people who die because the system says, you need this, but you can't have it for about six months. We hope to get you in six months. That's a death sentence for some people, isn't it, Doc? It is. Um, in fairness, though, as long as demand is higher than the resources available, uh, then some method of rationing applies. I agree. And so you have to you have to take your pick. Do you want the free market, which is the most efficient alloc allocator of resources known to mankind do you want the free market to be the the rationing mechanism yeah yes or do you want or do you want a government bureaucrat behind a dmv desk arbitrarily just making decisions like the one you just described well and doc i would go for that and people say well you make a big paycheck well i didn't always and i would have preferred fee for service which i think is what they called the old system where you went to the doctor and you paid a fee and on routine stuff, you paid out of pocket. And then you carried what we would call today catastrophic insurance, saying if something goes horribly wrong, cancer, heart, lung, whatever, you know, the big stuff, uh, car wreck, uh, then, then the catastrophic insurance kicks in. And frankly, Doc, that's how most people insure their cars. They say, 
I, I don't want to be covered for everything. You know, you could have, I, I suppose you could call a car insurance company and say, I'd like zero deductible coverage for everything. Every time I get the most minor scratch, I want to be able to come in and say, repaint my car. Uh, and I want to pay a zero deductible. Oh, and by the way, I'd like you to change my oil and replace my tires and put new brake pads on occasion. They'd say, we'll send you, sell you a policy, but you're not going to believe the premiums. <laughs> They're going to be off, off the charts, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, when I tell people that you can buy a knee replacement at my facility in Oklahoma City for $15,499, you know, that's a lot of money. But when you think about it, that's 10 months of premiums at $1,500 a month. Yep. You, know, you can you can buy open heart surgery in Oklahoma City for 34000 at the Oklahoma Heart Hospital, which is a physician-owned and controlled facility with outcomes second to none. 34000 that's a lot of money. That's two years' premiums. Yep. So I think, I think when you think through it in the way that you've described it, it, you know, what people are paying is it's just these astonishingly high amounts, but they're just being they're being bled very, very slowly. So you don't notice it. Well, and Doc, I had a guy who called me and he said, I need a new knee and the copay was going to be 20 grand. And he said, so I shopped around and I, I got a doctor and a hospital and an operating room, you know, all all kosher and all, you know, all fully certified to do it for 15. So he paid out of pocket straight to the anesthesiologist, which is what you do, to the surgeon, you know, for the, the actual hardware, uh, and got it for less than his copay would have been when he was supposedly insured, you know, which means makes insurance kind of a joke. But Dr. Smith, I wish you well. The Surgery Center of Oklahoma is where Dr. Keith Smith uh, finds his home as a board-certified anesthesiologist and the co-founder of the center. It's a pleasure to have you on. We'll have you back. Thanks for having me. Glad to do it. That's Dr. Keith Smith. Coming up, I'm going to get to your phone calls and emails. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Our friend Bob Barr is with us, former CIA analyst and member of Congress. And I told you that uh, apparently there are forces within America in the government who want to start screening all millennials for anxiety. Bob, this, it, this almost sounds like uh, our life story and our our news is being written by the babylon b uh this seems like a parody of real life well it is and uh some of your listeners may recall a movie i think it was way back maybe in the 70s or 80s uh called high anxiety <laughs> and i read i was reading some articles recently that made me think of this because you're right there is a a government agency that believes that we are such an anxious and depressed people that insurance companies should require uh, or should be required to pay for anxiety testing uh, for all kids over the age of eight and for all older adults. Well, you know where this is going to go, the same as I do. Okay, so you require testing for anxiety. Guess what? They're going to find anxiety. They're going to find anxious people. And then Big Pharma is going to step in and come up with uh, with meds to pay for it. Or not to pay for it, but to treat it. I mean, it's just crazy. Because what they're proposing is to test people for anxiety, even though there is no evidence of anxiety. Typical well, government. 
Or if there is, Bob, I don't know if you've seen the video. We talked about it, I think, last week. The Dutch Brothers, uh, Dutch bro, not Dutch Bros, uh, Starbucks uh, barista, who's sitting in the back room crying his little eyes out. He's so stressed out because he's going to school and he's working for 25 hours a week. And I thought, well, that would have been a light week for me when I was going to school. <laughs> but uh, but he's crying because, oh, they expect me to work eight hours and, and, and there are all these people who want me to pour their coffee for them. I would suggest that people like this get a grip on reality. And if you can't do that, move back in with mom and dad and let them take care of you. You're still a child. I mean, is there any way to actually tell Americans to man up a little bit? And, and I guess whatever the, uh, the complimentary uh, advice to, to young women would be, you know, take, take life seriously. Understand it's going to give you some, uh, you know, there are going to be some rocks in the road. But, but get over yourself. Well, there, there, there should be, but of course, government does not want people not to be anxious because if people are anxious, they need a cure, and government will step in and say, oh, notwithstanding the fact that we're causing people to be anxious, we're telling people that we're on the brink of a nuclear Armageddon, we're telling people that they're racist, we're telling people that they don't know what sex they are, so, you know, people are going to be anxious, and the government then has a reason to step in and control them by telling insurance companies, oh, you need to test people for anxiety. And guess what? Hmm, If you find that people are anxious, well, then government has to solve the problem by requiring medications to be given to them. It sounds like Brave New Worlds, the book that Aldous Huxley wrote back in the 1930s. A gram is better than a dam when they talked about Soma, the the drug that everybody in that society was on. Soma. And it also reminds me, Bob, there was a guy, and we actually had him on the show a couple of, I think it was a couple of decades ago. He was a shrink, and and that's okay. But he said that the the entire population ought to be on Prozac. I mean, he literally was saying either put it in in your multivitamin every day or put it into the drinking water so that the entire country could be on Prozac. And I thought, I mean, it was worth talking to the guy because he was interesting. But, But are we really that screwed up as a society? I think we are, and it's uh, it's getting worse. I mean, I remember uh, when our kids were going through uh, grade school and middle school. This would have been back in the 1980s. I mean, I think almost every other parent that we talked to was putting their kids on Ritalin yep. so that they would pay more attention in school. Uh, I mean, this is a, a horrible way to treat kids. And then, of course, they graduate from Ritalin to Prozac. And whatever now the uh, big pharma will come up with to treat the anxiety that government is forcing insurance companies to pay for the sessions to determine anxiety and depression. It's a it's a it's a phenomenally destructive circle. It is. And Bob, at the time, I remember when we did, we talked a lot about that on the show, uh, about how many kids were on Ritalin. And I said, why don't we take a look at another society that's similar to ours? And we looked at Great Britain. They had something like one. We had six times as many kids on Ritalin as Great Britain. And Great Britain is similar culturally, economically and otherwise. Uh, and you thought, why? Why are there so many American parents drugging their kids up? Didn't make any sense to me. Well, uh, it is what government wants to do. It, it, it makes the job easier for teachers to control the students. And, of course, those schools are public schools, by and large. So government is paying for it, and it's all a form of control. And it's, uh, it's really 
it's depressing. I hate to say that, but it's depressing to see what government is doing here. But they're going to force insurance companies to do this, and they're going to have to pay for it indirectly because the law provides that when this agency, uh, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, decides to require this kind of testing, the law requires that they can't charge the insured for it. Well, so what do they do? They just pass it on indirectly. That's Bob Barr, and we love having his insights into things. And you can read what he writes at townhall.com. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. I did not call Senator Sanders an ignorant slut. I'm not talking about buying it, but let's suppose I, I came in one day and the cocaine was there. Uh, people who are... Um her bilingual, speak English and stupid. I don't know why we have to give money to countries that hate us. They should be able to hate us for free. Looks like we're giving Lindsay Lohan the keys to the mini bar. President Biden is sort of like um, Kevin Bacon at the end of uh, Animal House. I can't get my head that far up my rear end. <laughs> that is Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. I think the guy is absolutely brilliant, and he was one of the people sounding off on inflation today and other issues. I thought we'd talk to Ryan Young, who's a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, at CEI. Hey, Ryan, welcome back to the program. And are we headed from major inflation to a massive recession here very, very soon, as Senator Kennedy and others have suggested? I hope not, but we are halfway there because, as you know, the economy did shrink last quarter. But uh, signs are we might be at or near the worst of inflation, but still too early to tell. Now, when you say we may be at or near, is that because uh, it peaked at an 8.5 rate and now has ticked it down from 8.5 to 8.3? Yeah, there's more going on. Um, What's going on with inflation is essentially... The supply of money is growing way faster than the economy is. When the amount of money gets out of balance with the amount of actual stuff that people are producing, that's when you get inflation. When COVID hit, the Fed printed a lot of money in an effort to stimulate the economy. And that's pretty much what caused uh, our current troubles. The Fed didn't take action until March to do anything about it. So given the lag times involved with this sort of thing, it's going to be with us until next year. But since the worst of it happened already a year and a half ago, This might be about the worst of it, I hope. Okay, the worst, because one of the things that bothers me about that number, because I'm not an economist, Ryan, but when they say 8.5 last month and now it's 8.3, they're doing that on a 12-month average looking into the past. What I'm wondering about is looking from this point forward, from this point to May of next year, with producer prices up and everything else, why should we believe that that inflation is going to moderate or change over the months ahead? Because most of that 8.3 or 8.5 number is from the 12 months behind us, isn't it? Yeah, the trouble is that we're relying on the consumer price index, and that is not very good at telling what price increases are due to inflation, having to do with the money supply, and which price increases are not inflation. Um, Stuff like the oil supply uh, shock from uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, supply restrictions because of regulation, supply and demand changes, none of those are inflation. They're still real, they're still happening, and we still have policies we need to pursue to address them. But they're not inflation. Those are separate issues, and the CPI is pretty lousy at teasing what is inflation and what is not. So that's we're not getting an honest picture there entirely. 
I'm talking to Ryan, uh, Ryan Young, who's a senior fellow of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. When you watch President Biden, as, as I, do, I watch him every day when he's saying something about these subjects uh, in preparation for this show, it doesn't seem that he understands what's causing the inflation. He keeps saying it's Vladimir Putin and it's the war. And you've identified, I think, whether it's the real cause, which is massive government spending and shoveling trillions of dollars into an economy. Yeah, the spending doesn't help um, with all the if you look at the numbers involved, all the big COVID spending bills uh, are probably responsible for about one percentage point of inflation. Um, that's only one percentage point out of eight. Uh, so the bulk of this is on the Fed. It's not on the elected branches. The president's trying to take credit for something he can't do much about. But one percent is not nothing. He's not entirely innocent either. So they need to cut out the spending. They need to liberalize trade and supply chain regulations. Um, There's plenty they can do to help with non-inflation price increases. But with inflation itself, it's a monetary issue. That's not the president's job. That's the Fed's job. Yeah. Ryan, tell me this. What is the proper prescription? If you were running the show, what are the things you could do quickly that would start to curb inflation and bring prices back down to something manageable for Americans? Have the Fed follow a rule. If the economy grows by a certain amount, have the money supply grow by a matching amount. The Fed's job is basically to play a matching game. So if we have a preset rule binding them to that that they they aren't allowed to stray from during a crisis, we'll have a lot more predictability in monetary policy. It'll keep inflation steady, and it also will help with investment because investors like to be able to plan around things in the long term. With what we have now, they can't do that. Well, and are they likely, would, they, would the Fed, this, this weird animal that's not a government agency entirely, it's not entirely a private uh, agency either, it's some kind of weird animal stuck in the middle, would it actually be willing to, to, to go with that kind of limit on its activity? They would like to. Um, if they, if their so? only mission was to keep inflation low, they could do it. The trouble is that the Fed has a dual mandate where they, in addition to inflation, also have to keep an eye on unemployment. And some of President Biden's nominees want to further expand the Fed's mission to include things like environmental concerns, social justice concerns, and to monetary policy. When the Fed's trying to do four things, it's going to do all of them poorly. Instead, it should do one thing that it is capable of doing well. Yeah, and when you say social justice concerns, meaning they're supposed to get involved in pushing economic buttons to make Americans uh, hire people differently or hire people based on color instead of based on merit, things like that? Yeah, the Fed plays a role in banking regulation in addition to its monetary policy responsibilities, and they're awful vague about exactly what they do, but that's the flavor of it, yeah. <laughs> do you, I think they like to be vague. Uh, and, and I think they enjoy having that kind of power. Am I wrong in, in assuming that? Yeah, power comes from discretion, having a lot of leeway. That's why I'm advocating for a rule to bind the Fed so it has to keep an eye on inflation and do little else. If the Fed doesn't really do the job that we perceive as, as the job it's supposed to be doing, you know, per, perk up the economy when the economy is lagging and, and hold it back when it's taking off, why do we have to have the Fed as involved in our economy as it is? Is it actually serving a purpose that's essential or just one that's politically important? As long as you're going to have a government-managed currency, you need a central bank. Uh, what we have to do is keep that central bank independent. Uh, the last administration was not respectful of that, and this administration could also be better about that. The Fed is capable of doing a good job, but it has to have the right institutional framework to do that, and we don't have that right now. Yeah, I mean, because what you described earlier where you said if you link the money supply uh, to where the economy is going, that could almost be done by a computer. 
I mean, you could say these are the rules, this is how it grows, and stop letting individual politically motivated individuals uh, affect the outcome. Or am I wrong about that? Would, would decisions by a Fed with that limit on be different than the decisions that are made by a Fed that doesn't uh, operate under those limits? There are enough human factors where I wouldn't trust it to an algorithm, but you're not far off at all. And in fact, wouldn't an algorithm, at least that would give everything else in America some predictability. If you said, if we know if the economy starts to heat up, the algorithm will start to you know, trim this back. And if it goes the other direction, it'll do this. But right now, there's, there's no predictability at all, which is why everybody on the, on the marketplace, at least on Wall Street, watches what the Fed is doing, because nobody can exactly predict what they're going to do. They can come close, but they can't necessarily predict uh, you know, with enough certainty to have to have some security about what's going to happen. Ryan Young is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And while all the other crises are mounting up at uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and Joe Biden seems forever out to lunch, we've got to go back to the, well, the folks in Iran and be concerned about what's going on there. And do they have the material necessary to make a nuke? Uh, Trita Parsi joins me again, who's come back to the show, uh, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible uh, Statecraft. Uh, Trita, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be back. So what do we know? A couple of weeks ago, I told my audience that uh, the smart folks were saying, well, Iran is, is getting very close, maybe weeks away. Weeks have now gone by. Uh, have the mad mullahs arrived at that point where they can tell the world, we have a nuke now and you'll treat us differently? No, they have not. What they have done, however, is that they now have enough 60% enriched uranium to be able to build a bomb. They would have to enrich that up to 90%. And from there on, it would still take them two to three years to actually build a bomb. But the fact that they've gotten this far is highly problematic It is a direct result of two things. A, that Pompeo and Bolton managed to uh, push for this maximum pressure strategy that got Trump out of the Iran deal. All of the different restrictions that actually were on the Iranian program were listed. And secondly, that it's now been a year and a half and Biden has actually not gone back into the deal. He's been negotiating a lot, but he's not gotten back into the deal. And in essence, he actually has continued. Trump, uh, 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 the maximum pressure strategy, which has been utterly counterproductive. None of these things that we're talking about right now existed as long as the Iran deal were in place. Now, let, let me ask you, when you say he's stayed with the maximum pressure, my understanding is that in January of last year, when Biden took over, that, uh, that Iran was on its lips economically. It was, it was in trouble. Uh, and that, that enough has been uh, you know, relieved of that pressure uh, that Iran is now in much better financial shape than it was a year ago. Is that the case? It's completely false. Uh, Biden has not lifted a single sanction that has any economic impact uh, on the Iranians. The reason why the Iranians are in a better economic shape, and by the way, they're not in a good economic shape. They're in no. a very bad economic shape. But they're not about to you know, fall apart or anything like that. But the reason why the trajectory has become more positive is, A, because over time, countries find ways to get around sanctions. That always happens. And B, oil prices are skyrocketing. 
And as a result, whatever oil they're still managing to sell, they're selling it for three times the price from just a year and a half ago. Yep. And there's and and some of that, I mean, some of that's the world economy recovering from the pandemic, but some of it is because the the White House has taken an anti-oil industry position and has done everything it can to retard the 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 no the increase in American production. Um, not my area of expertise, uh, so you, you may be right on that. But I, I can tell you though that a big chunk of it is right now because. The Saudis are not pumping more, even though the United States has asked them to do so. And because of what's happening right now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, you know, the world's reaction to it, it adds not only uh, a risk premium, but that's in addition to all of the new additional difficulties that are coming about in in selling oil, because Russia is um, uh, one of the largest producers in the world. Now, Trita, when you say that the Biden administration is still negotiating, I know we're using the Russians as a go-between with Iran, but are we actually asking for anything? Because it seems the mullahs are asking for a lot, and it seems the Biden administration is not asking for much of anything except a deal. Are are we actually asking for anything out of this so-called deal? Look, what we should be asking for is just a deal. And get back into the deal, because that deal put massive restrictions on the Iranians. What the Biden administration actually did is that they were signaling that they were only going to go back into the deal if the Iranians were going to agree to a longer and stronger deal. This is what the Biden administration said in the early months of its presidency. That was a mistake. I understand that we want more, but asking for more, pushing for more has gotten us less. Well, because what would at the end of the day, we pulled out of this deal. We're the reason why all of these restrictions were taken off. Now the Iranians have expanded their program, which everyone who knew anything about this told the Trump administration would happen. And it did happen. What is more problematic, and, or in addition to that, is that Biden knew this would happen. And instead of just doing an executive order and go back into the deal... He decided that he wanted to negotiate. It's been going on for one month and three, four, uh, one year and three, four months now. And we still don't have a deal. And as a result, the Iranian program has continued to expand. Well, let me ask you, because, Trita, I still remember when the world's attitude toward Iran was, you have no reason to have a nuclear program at all, and you're not allowed to do that. We've now got to the point where we've accepted or normalized the idea that Iran will have a nuclear program, and, and they have been progressing in the direction of not just civilian use of nuclear power, I think they used that as a cover early on, but to say, eventually, we're going to get a bomb. Am I wrong about that? Unfortunately, you are, Lars. I hate to say it, but you're wrong on this one, because A, they're a sovereign country, and there's absolutely nothing that says that they don't have a right to have a nuclear program, that they don't have a right to have a nuclear weapons program. But a nuclear program, actually, we, the United States, sold the Iranians back in so, well, yeah, under a different leadership, a right? No, Un- under a different leadership. Countries rights don't, yes, but countries' rights don't change depending on who's the leader. So uh, them having a nuclear program is, is a different story. There was never a consensus that they cannot. What the consensus has been is that they cannot have a program that leads to a weapons program. That's a different story. And the deal stopped the Iranians from being able to have the option of building a bomb. I mean, let me just give you a couple of statistics. 
they had a stockpile of low enriched uranium. That's at 3.5%. Right. That was more than 10,000. Fuel-grade uranium. Yeah. Yes, fuel-grade uranium. If they had enriched all of that to higher levels, they would have had enough for roughly seven or eight bombs. Out of that 10,000 kilos, they had to ship out, and they did, 98% of it. Only about 200 kilos were left on Iranian soil, and that's simply not enough to be able to build a bomb. And the inspections and the restrictions on the type of centrifuges, they had all of these things combined, made it virtually impossible for them to build a bomb. That's why we should have stuck to the deal, and that's why Biden, I mean, he wants to blame Trump for it now, but he's been president for a year and a half. At this point, it's his policy. It's not Trump's policy any longer. He's acknowledged that, that he's taking the policy of his predecessor and simply rolling with it. And, and at this point, would you say there's much chance that he'll get any kind of deal the way the White House has laid out they want a deal? The, the chances are less than 50 percent. And once if it becomes if if it fails, once it becomes clear that it's failed, we're going to be in a very bad situation. Because Biden is then going to further deepen um, maximum pressure, uh, and the Iranians are going to further expand their nuclear program, and it's going to get into a really dicey situation, and war, another war in the Middle East, is going to be back on the table. That's Trina Parsi, who is the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you, Trina. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Multiple billions of dollars worth of lawsuits have targeted pharmaceutical companies over the last few years because people became addicted to pills. Now, was that the pharma company's uh, responsibility? No. I mean, I always advise you if I have a dog in the fight, I got no bias in this case. I don't have any pharma stock. Uh, I've never worked for the pharma companies. I've never taken a dime from the pharma companies. But it seems to me that when people become addicted to drugs and then say, well, it's because of the company that made them. My first question to them is, did you take the drugs as the doctor advised you to? But that argument to a large extent is over at this point because, you know, the the big settlements that the states got for the most part uh, are, are pretty much over and done with. The only question now is, have those lawsuits now set loose a, a tsunami of other lawsuits? And I thought we'd talk to Jeff Steyer about that, who's a senior fellow at the Consumer Choice Center. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Lars. Are we going to see uh, uh, an avalanche, if that's a better metaphor for it, of other lawsuits mm-hmm. against companies saying, I want to blame my problems on somebody else? Yeah, well, um, they have a lot of support uh, because the plaintiff lawyers are telling people that. Uh, that you can go after these companies. But in the case that I wrote about in today's Washington Examiner op-ed, it wasn't even the pharmaceutical companies who, in some cases, did not act properly. And you're right, uh, if an individual abused drugs, I'm not sure the manufacturer of those drugs who complied with the FDA regulations uh, should be to blame. But in the cases that I've been writing about, it's actually the pharmacies who they've been going after, the Walgreens of the world. And I'm like, you, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not a big fan of CVS, actually. Uh, but they're being sued because they gave people the prescriptions that they came in with a doctor's prescription for and got the drugs. As I wrote today, there are cases where the Walgreens of the world thought there was something suspicious and did not fill the prescription 
and they were sued. Well, now they're being sued for filling valid prescriptions. So, so there is there is no right thing. answer to the question. If you do the right thing, then you get sued. And if you don't do the right thing, you get sued. Even if you don't know what the right thing is, because when I go to my pharmacist and say, here's the prescription, I expect the pharmacist to, you know, they're supposed to give you a little advice and don't, you know, eat this after or take this after a meal or, you know, it might upset your stomach or don't take it before you're going to drive your car. But they don't give you much beyond that, nor are they expected to, are they? No, that's not their job. Their job is to fill your prescription. And, you know, the relationship that you have with your doctor, that's where the obligation is. Uh, Obviously, if somebody comes in with a fake prescription... Uh, we're catching those. We're making sure that doesn't happen. But something interesting interesting happened in these pharmaceutical or pharmacy cases in Ohio. Uh, they only went after the deep pockets, the Walgreens and the CVSs. In fact, during the period of the opioid crisis at its height in Ohio, it was actually the mom-and-pop shop, mom-and-pop pharmacies, who were filling the most opioid prescriptions. And that you know, shouldn't surprise us. Uh, because the CVSs and the Walgreens at least have the resources to stop some of the fraud, to prevent some of it. But the mom-and-pop shops, the pharmacies were taken advantage of, and for some reason, Lars, the plaintiff's lawyers didn't sue the mom-and-pop pharmacies who were filling the majority of prescriptions. They only went after those deep pockets, Walgreens and CVS. It wasn't about solving the opioid crisis. It was about a transfer of funds from a successful pharmaceutical pharmacy uh, to people who abuse drugs. Well, and, and Jeff, I watched a couple of documentaries. I can't remember the names of these guys, but they were they ran a pill mill down in South Florida, and they, they just kind of lucked into it. I mean, they were looking for something to make money on. They say, hey, we can fill these, and, and they started to fake the doctor's approvals. You know, they had some doctor who just basically rubber stamped. You walked in and said, my back hurts. Okay, you know, and they'd write you a, a script. And you go off and fill it. Oftentimes, people would fill them so they could then sell sell the pills because Oxy was selling for about a buck a milligram on the street. So you get, you know, 80 milligram pills times 30 days. You know, you had 2,400 bucks sitting in your pocket. You sell half of it and take the rest of it. I mean, there were lots of those scams. But most of those people have either been put out of business or, or they, they're in jail, which means there's no money there. So the lawyers are just going after the deep pockets. That doesn't solve anything, does it? Exactly. And the deep pockets, in this case, the Walgreens of the world, didn't do anything wrong. And as my friend, Dr. Sally Patel over at the American Enterprise Institute has been writing, the opioid epidemic has evolved. It's changed. And, you know, some of those people who did get addicted got the opioids because they were having legitimate pain, whether it was from cancer or post-surgical. But now the opioid crisis is about people who are using drugs, people are dying because they're getting street drugs laced with fentanyl coming in through Mexico, coming from China. That is not, I don't know why you would go after a pharmacy for that problem, which is what we have today. It's an evolving problem. And when you're shooting after, when you're kind of targeting the villain of maybe a decade ago, or maybe the villain of maybe a decade ago, you're not going to solve today's problem, which is coming in through the border in Mexico. Well, and, and Jeff, I mean, I've read a few studies. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that, but some of these studies where they, they actually looked and said, how many of the people who actually overdose uh, because of, of pharma products actually started on a pharma product? And, and they found out that when you get right down, it's maybe 3%, that, that the rest of the people were taking pharma products, but they were taking them illegally. 
In other words, it was, hey, yeah. you can get high on this. Oh, and then when that runs out and we can't find any more pills, somebody to sell them to us, we'll go out and buy some street stuff. And then at the end of the day, you say, but who made those pills? Now that I want to sue somebody. And, and oh. the actual, when they've looked at them, there's always a story, and I've heard this a hundred times from mom. Mom will say, well, my son was addicted to heroin. I go, well, why'd that happen? Well, it wasn't his fault. He broke his wrist. The doctor gave him three days worth of oxy. He ran out of the oxy, went back, and the doctor maybe gave him more, maybe didn't. And then he just transitioned from that to something else because he found out the pills were fun, especially if you take them uh, more than you know more than one at a time, especially if you crush them up first and destroy the time release. And I keep wondering when somebody is going to bring a suit that says, the person taking the drugs uh, is is the person who is at fault in this, because I think in many cases that's the case. Am I wrong? Well, you're right, it is. And what's, what really worries me and has been worrying me since the beginning of the opioid crisis, in fact, I wrote about it for the New York Sun well over a decade ago, which is opioids are a class of medication that are uniquely important in our society for people who have real pain, whether it's you know, cancer, whether it's post-surgical, opioids really fill a need. God forbid you're in cancer pain or you're having surgery. Tylenol won't do the trick for you. Nope. Opioids are subject to abuse, and people, like you said, crush them. I mean, the whole idea of crushing them is because pharmaceutical companies have innovated to reduce the abuse potential of the drugs, and people will always find a way around that. We ultimately have to hold individuals who are abusing as accountable because if we blame the innovators, I believe the wonderful innovators who came up with these compassionate drugs that help keep people keep people out of pain when they're properly prescribed and properly taking them, those are good things. And we will lose the good things in society, the things that give us the incredible high quality of life that we have as a result of innovation. You know, I, you and I have talked about glyphosate and Roundup, the weed killer. The plaintiff yep. lawyers are going after that, even though there's no evidence. You exactly. name it, the plaintiff lawyers are going after innovative products. And here we are where food prices are skyrocketing, and we're taking away important tools from farmers. Anywhere across society, any, anywhere across the economy, Lars, the plaintiff lawyers are lined up to attack innovation, and they're harming American consumers. Well, see, I'd love to see tort reform where they, they, they cut the legs off some of the plaintiff's lawyers. There are certainly good cases where somebody can't get representation because they don't have any money, and they really do have a legitimate case. Fine, I'm okay with that. But these things where a plaintiff's lawyer says, we're going to make tens of millions of dollars, and we're really not addressing the problem, we're not punishing the people who actually created the problem, but boy, are we going to get rich. Those people, they're just shysters, and I have no tolerance for them whatsoever. Jeff, thanks very much for what you do at the Consumer Choice Center, and we appreciate your time. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Thursday. I'm always glad to get your calls, and if you want to dial in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Now, I have talked to Kathy Barnett before, and I, I know that Ms. Barnett probably does not want to make this one story that is so very relevant this week the center point of her campaign. And if you listen to her speeches, I mean, I keep seeing her name and her picture and her videos pop up on social media because she is so well-spoken and she speaks to all the issues. This is why she's running for the U.S. Senate in the great state of Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. Ms. Barnett, it's good to have you back, and thank you for coming on to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me on again. And you know, kind of like most of the issues um, that we talk about, I, I did not arrive 
at these issues because I read about it in a book or because I inherited them. And, you know, certainly, you know, I didn't read about poverty and like I, I lived that. And likewise, when I come to the topic of pro-life, uh, it's not something that I read about, but it's a part of my own journey. I am the byproduct of a race. My mother was 11 years old when I was conceived. My father was 21. And, you know, and, and like I often say to people, I had nothing to do with how I was conceived. I took no part in any of that. And yet there I was. And I am so grateful to God that there were adults in the room who looked at what was growing in my mother's tummy and saw that my life mattered. And, and she made the decision along with her family. At 11, we don't expect any child to be making the kind of consequential choices your mother Correct. had to make. But, but she was encouraged by the people around her not get rid of that baby who would become Kathy Barnett Senate candidate, but, but keep that baby and honor that baby and love that baby, right? Yes. You know, I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, my mother was 11 years old. She had no idea what was happening to her little body. And I have never tried to glorify how I was conceived. And yet here I am. And so, you know, a lot of us want to say, Oh, like, that's just so horrible. And I just wouldn't have, you know, you know, just, you know, like that can be an exception. I'm here. And so, and my life matters. My life is valuable. From me has come two amazing little babies. I call them babies. They're 16 and 13 now. They're my babies. And when their daddy and I release them into the world, they are the kind of citizens we want. But all of that would have been eradicated. All of that would have just been destroyed. And, you know, and the harm that was inflicted upon my mom was already done. Murdering me would not have resolved that harm or that, you know, grave wrong that was imposed upon my mother. And so, again, I'm, I'm so grateful that our country is at a point where we're having this discussion about life. You've actually taken issue with one of the uh, the other candidates who's got a, a lot of name familiarity, and that's Dr. Oz, by saying that he hasn't exactly uh, steered a straight course when it comes to abortion issues, has he? No, he hasn't. You know, and it's not just Dr. Oz, but it's um, Dave McCormick as well. I mean, if you want to be a flaming liberal, then just stand in that truth. Or if you want to be a globalist like Dave McCormick, then just stand in that truth. With Democrats coming in and putting their foot on our throats, their foot on our businesses, on our schools. And when we look to our side of the aisle for help, there are very few people on our side of the aisle who are willing to use their leverage, their platform and influence to help us. And I believe people coming behind me and the reason why I'm doing so well is really less about me and more about you, the voters. Uh, we know what we live through and we're looking for a real fighter. Kathy, I want you to speak to something. I'm glad you brought up globalism because I don't think Americans have a real appreciation for how much some uh, people within our political sphere in America want to give away our national sovereignty to people like Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the rest of those folks as though erasing our borders and erasing our sovereignty is somehow going to be good for Americans. And I know you believe in that. You, you don't believe yes. in that globalism. Well, listen, I'm so excited that you know who Klaus Schwab is. You know how many people I talk to who don't know who this oh, yeah. man is? They oh, yeah. know who George Soros is, right? But no one is paying attention 
to Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Hence the reason why I deemed both uh, Dave McCormick and Mehmet Oz uh, uh, while I was on the debate stage in the last two debates, but certainly last, because we need to know it. These people are pretending they are Trump card-carrying members of the Patriot Party, and they're not. <laughs> they are globalists. And so when you're making, so I don't care who is endorsing whom, these are globalists. And, uh, and the world is shifting. Pay attention. I'm sure your listeners are. If you, if you know who Klaus Schwab is and you are taking your role, um, your platform in the media very seriously. So I know I you're educating your people. Um, the world is shifting. Yes, a shift is going on. When you want to talk about national sovereignty, look at what's happening to Germany and Ukraine right now. Germany is incapable of making the types of decisions that are necessary in order to secure their fellow NATO allies right now and Ukraine. Why? Because America and Germany have allowed Putin to control over 10% of the world's energy source. Yep. Uh, over 50% of Germany's energy source comes from Putin. Over 46% of Italy's energy source comes from Putin. 100% of, of Moldova and some of the other Balkan states' energy source comes from Putin. Kathy Barnett, you got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. At LarsLarson.com. And we turn to Grover Norquist at Americans for Tax Reform to get a read on where America sits right now. Grover, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you. Uh, I think most of America is suffering from the America last policies of the current administration and it shows up in the public opinion polls, doesn't it? it? It does. You wonder sometimes whether people running their lives see the disasters unfolding. Um, but they do. They recognize the damage inflation's doing. I guess they're reminded every time we go to the grocery store, get, go to the gas station, the anti-energy policies are expensive and uh, making things more difficult. Uh, CNBC had a survey, 81% of Americans expect a recession this year, this year. We already had one quarter uh, of negative growth uh, the first quarter of the year. Uh, who knows what is coming? 77%, this is Gallup now, 77% of Americans say the economy is getting worse. Um, and if you're the administration, how do you flail around? And the president now wants another trillion dollars in tax increase. Actually, he wants a lot more than that. He wanted 11 taxes on energy, 35 ta 36 taxes in general. But it looks as though there may be a deal with Joe Manchin uh, and Kristen Sinema agreeing to raise taxes a trillion dollars uh, and raise a whole bunch of spending in addition to that. Um, now, Joe, Joe Biden wants to do this. Joe Manchin said he didn't want to do this. I mean, Joe Manchin was, you know, on the record making it very clear that when he ran for office that he was opposing any tax increase until Washington could prove that they actually were spending the money responsibly. Okay. I don't know. Um, you know, I can't look the people in West Virginia in the eye and ask them to pay a penny more until I know that we're running this government efficiently, he said, when he ran for office. Can he really tell the people of West Virginia or the country that he believes it's efficiently run now, that the rate of what was stolen from the welfare checks was twice 
what it normally is. It's usually about 10 percent. This was a 20 percent or more with Biden's um, two trillion dollars that he spent uh, the other day. Um, again, the guy who's supposed to be our guardian uh, said, I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of these taxes or increase any taxes. So he got elected promising to oppose tax increases, and now he may be cutting a deal with Biden to raise taxes dramatically and raise spending dramatically at a time of inflation. Uh, I don't know how this is going to hang out, but at hightaxjoe.com, we've got all these lovely quotes from Joe Manchin and Joe Biden, two Joes, about why they know better than to do what they're doing. Well, and I think it was Churchill said that uh, to try to tax your way to prosperity was like standing in a bucket and trying to lift yourself up by the bail, the handle on the bucket. It makes no sense. And and mo- and the spending you talk about is not spending by the private sector. It's spending by the government as though government spending somehow makes better use of the money than if citizens and companies were allowed to make their own decisions. So how in the world are they going to justify telling America we've now run the place into the ditch? Inflation is out of control. It's at some of the worst levels in 40 years. Uh, energy prices, worst levels in 40 years. And now we're about to stagnate the economy into probably the loss of jobs. You know, where right now we've got 11 million available jobs and nobody to fill them. Uh, that, that number may not stay there. And when citizens are told you're not going to be making as much money, you're paying more in taxes. Inflation has already wiped out every wage you've had for probably the last two or three years. Oh, and we're going to raise taxes. And if they say, well, it's only on corporations. Grover, I remind my audience all the time. Virtually everything you have to have to live, food, fuel, energy, uh, housing, everything is coming from a corporation of one kind. Even the dentist in your neighborhood is likely to be a tiny little corporation. So if you tax all them, they're going to pass it along to the customers, which is all of us. Yeah, the studies show that about 30 percent of tax increases on companies uh, result in higher uh, costs for consumers. But about 70% comes out of the pockets of workers in lower wages um, or fewer workers working because, you know, companies spend $100, they spend about 70 of it on people's salaries and 30 on other stuff. Um, it, the whole point of the corporate income tax is to fool people as to who's actually paying for this. That's why the establishment and the left love the corporate income tax. You know, when they tax cigarettes, you know who's paying for it. <laughs> when, you, when you tax income, you have a personal income, you have a pretty good idea of who's paying for it. A corporate income tax is not paid for by General Motors. It's paid for by people who buy General Motors cars and by the people who work at General Motors who will be paid less. Yeah, and, and the fact is, smart companies know we can only raise, we can only pass along so much of this because at some yeah. point you raise the price of the car by 10%, you lose 15% of your buyers. And and they say that that math doesn't work. But apparently nobody around Joe Biden, I watched one of his senior economic advisors on Fox the other day, and he was having a hell of a time because the two anchors kept asking him reasonable questions, and he finally kind of blew a gasket because he didn't want to be asked those questions. And he said, well, I, I don't know what where it's going to be at the end of the year. And they said, well, then who's advising the president? If you're the senior advisor and you're telling us you don't know where the economy is going or how to make it go in the right ways, then who's telling Joe? Joe Biden, President Biden, is old enough to remember how Jimmy Carter got himself into the same fix, right? 
yep. spending too much money, uh, trying to raise taxes on investment, uh, not liking energy, wanting everybody to wear sweaters instead of looking for oil and natural gas. Um, and we had inflation up over 10% two years in a row. The uh, interest rate hit 21%, the prime interest rate. Um, I mean, that's devastating. That's exactly where Biden's taking us. Now, maybe he's old enough to remember Carter, but he's so old that he doesn't remember what happened to Carter. I mean, he didn't he didn't learn from Carter's mistakes. He's repeating them. In fact, I kind of wonder, uh, I don't know that Jimmy Carter's given interviews anymore, but um, he's still with us. But is, you, you just wonder... Um, is he having some some flashbacks to to what happened then? Because I'm sure that if you're president and things don't go well with anything, that you look back and think, I should have done it that way. And I, I'd, I'd be really curious whether Jimmy Carter would have an opinion on how things are getting goofed up. Although I'm, I'm sure he's very, very glad to know that he's now no longer the worst president of the last 50 years because Joe Biden has taken his place. That's Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform, the group's president. Grover, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website, the vote counts the same, at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll get back to those in just a moment. Like a lot of Americans, I think, we've had it about up to here with China. I've had it up up to here with China threatening Taiwan. I've had it up to here with China supplying a lot of our consumer goods, taking our jobs, and then threatening the United States. I've had it up to here with China saying, we're going to remake your uh, pop culture, your movies, your music, and everything else And I can just see down that road to say, if they've got this much influence now and they're calling a lot of the shots, what are they going to be doing in 10 or 20 years? So if there were a way to sort of stop relying on China as much and maybe send our business to people that are a little bit more American friendly, I'd be entirely behind it. Now, John Schweppe has joined me now, the director of policy and government affairs at the American Principles Project, who's also written about this for Spectator. John, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lars. I know that uh, a friend of mine uh, told me often that uh, everything is easy as long as you don't have to do it. So when you say, well, let's just stop relying on China and so much and take our business elsewhere, sounds easy. I'm sure that some of the people who have to do business with China or feel forced by circumstances to do it say, yeah, easier said than done. But are there some ways we can start moving in that direction and maybe send a message to the chai comms that we don't like their behavior and we don't much want to do business with people who behave the way they do? Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to, right? Because otherwise what's going to happen is that China is going to win out and they're going to have global dominance and we're going to be subservient to whatever they want. And uh, so in this piece I wrote for, for Spectator, I made an analogy to hard drugs, and I think it's a pretty, you know, accurate oh, one. I, I uh, love Dennis that. Quaid, <laughs> De- Dennis Quaid famously said that his involvement with cocaine had three stages, the fun, the fun with problems, and then just the problems. And that's happened with China. You know, when we opened up to China in the 90s, granted them most favored nation status, the selling point to Americans was this is going to be great for American businesses. We're going to create jobs. We're going to, you know, improve our standard of living. And we were told that we would essentially outsource our values, our democratic values, to China. 
that's not what's happened. And now, because China's become so powerful, because that market has become so enticing to American corporations, the opposite is happening, where you have Disney censoring American values out of their films, uh, where you have video game companies like Activision uh, actively censoring to placate the CCP. And so, um, you know, it goes beyond censorship. I mean, this is something we should be very worried about. And really, I think Americans need to recognize that we're in a second Cold War here. Um, You know, this is very similar to what we dealt with with the Soviet Union, except I think actually uh, China may ultimately prove to be a a more potent threat. Yeah, I think you're right about that, because the theory all the way back to Nixon opening things up with China was if we let them become part of the community of nations, why they'll start behaving like a good, solid member of that community. And instead, what we got was a much more uh, wealthy, much more, uh, you know, productive, I guess, in one sense, making a lot of money on us, uh, a country that behaved just as badly as they always had, only they had more resources courtesy of us. Right. Unlike the Soviet Union, I think the Chinese have figured out how to exploit various aspects of, of capitalism to enrich themselves and solidify their power. And so we're in a situation where, you know, obviously we, we're dealing with historic inflation right now, Uh, Supply chains are obviously contributing to that. And it's part of the problem is that uh, we have American corporations who are convinced that, well, we have to manufacture all these parts in China. We have to manufacture prescription medications in China. And of course, you know, when China has that kind of leverage over us, they can do a lot of really bad things. And so, you know, I think what what we need to be worried about is with the kerfuffle over Nancy Pelosi going to, to Taiwan, you know, the reason that's such a concern here is because China has huge power, enormous power over us. And I think that's something we need to be focused on as a national policy. And if Democrats don't do it, then Republicans certainly need to. Uh, But we need to be separating ourselves from China and competing with them and making sure that we, you know, don't lose uh, our global economic dominance to them. I guess, and that one really bothered me. I've got, I've got a tie to Taiwan. I was born there, but, and I've always liked the country and I like their attitudes. I like their freedom. But the idea that when a, a U.S. official wants to go visit one of our allies, Taiwan, and China feels that it can get away with saying, if you do that, we may just attack the country. We, we might even shoot down the plane with Nancy Pelosi on it. Americans, I thought, would be more outraged than I, than I guess I read in their reaction to it. Yeah, I'm never going to be one to defend Nancy Pelosi, but here was a rare circumstance where I felt that, you know, we should have been much stronger in defending her decision to go there because she's an American and, and, and that's her right. And, you know, this administration didn't even stand by her. They were playing, you know, very fast and loose with their words, trying not to upset China. And I think that's just crazy. And look, I understand that it's like, you know, going back to the drugs analogy, uh, we're in a position where we it's really difficult to get off it, and I understand that, but we are not going to succeed if, unless we do. So I'm talking to John Schweppe from the American Principles Project, but is it really, John? I mean, if an American company said, look, we have screws or circuits or something that are made in China now, let's look for some other suppliers. And most smart companies, they don't put all their eggs in one basket. I remember talking to a guy from one of the, I think it was Anheuser-Busch, and I said, do you buy much in the way of hops from America? And he says, no. He says they're cheaper and they're greater quantity buying them from South America. I said, then why do you buy any here? 
He says, we want to keep all these other guys operating because, you know, we want to have alternative supplies. We'd be foolish to buy all of our anything from one place or one company or one country. And I would think that American companies would want to insulate themselves, not just from Chinese machinations, but also from China, you know, from supply chain issues saying, well, you know, we make a third of our stuff in China. And then we make a third of it in Malaysia and a third of it in Taiwan. And we spread our, you know, spread our risk around as well. Isn't that in the best interest of big companies? In the long term, certainly. But, you know, the allure of short term profits is always pretty compelling. And the other thing, a lot of these companies are considering is that they want access to Chinese markets. And the CCP is very aggressive in terms of if you want access to our markets, you have to invest here, you have to manufacture here, you have to do all of this. And so that's why you see companies like Apple so in bed with China um, to where they actually took off of uh, the iPhone made in California because they've become effectively a Chinese company in order to have access to that enormous market. You know, John, the the change I'd like to see, and I think it would be a relatively easy one, but tell me if, if I've got any of this wrong. Over the last couple of years, this one just blew me away. If you're an American company and you want to sell, you want to have your stocks traded on the American markets, you have certain disclosure requirements. You got to tell the public your quarterlies. You got to tell them all this information about your company. Any foreign company that wants to be on American stock markets has to make similar disclosures. The one country on planet Earth, and I think this happened during Obama, they said, "Oh, China, you don't have to make any of those disclosures." So when people buy Chinese stocks in companies, uh, you don't know about them what you would know about Boeing or Caterpillar or Microsoft or Apple. You, you, it's kind of basically a big, dark, black hole. And, and you say, well, the stock appears to be going up and I'm buying it. Well, do you know anything about what's behind the company? No. Why would we give them that kind of access and why don't we rescind that right now? Say, you want to do business in our markets, you do the same disclosures everybody else does. Well, I think, I think that's a brilliant idea and we should definitely pursue it. But, you know, ultimately... This is just what it's going to take. I'm- Absolutely. That's John Schweppe with the American Principles Project. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first at 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your calls shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. And as always, we promise to put naysayers to the head of the line, something I think that Professor Bill Jacobson would agree with. He is the founder of the law blog Legal Insurrection, a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell University, a Cornell Law School. Uh, Professor, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. So I work in the media, and I won't take this personally, but the mainstream media and maybe maybe the rest of us have a problem with credibility right now with the American public, don't we? That's right. Gallup just came out with their survey that they do every year for 20, 30 years, and it's, I think, an all-time low for media. They don't have one category for media. It's TV media and a couple of different, but no matter how you slice it, the media is pretty much at the bottom of institutions that have support in the U.S. Ranking even below Congress? Because that's a low bar. Well, I think they're right about they're, they're competing for the bottom position. Let's put it that way. Very low. I forget what the, the difference was. That Congress might be a little lower, but they're, they're basically at the bottom. And that's not how it's always been. Of course, you know, what's going on now is a total narrative-driven mainstream media. That's all that really seems to matter is the headline and the reaction 
And, you know, if the truth follows eventually, so be it. But people have moved on by the time that happens. You know, one of the concerns I've got is that this isn't just an issue for a business, because that's what media is in America. It's a business, but it's an institution that people depend on because I think the founders were pretty clear about warning us, if you don't have a well-informed public, you really can't maintain the republic that we have. Fair, fair to say? Yeah, well, I think we are, in terms of media coverage of events, really in a post-truth world that... If you remember, you know, during the Trump years in particular, we always used to follow the, you know, 24 to 72 hour rule. Whatever the big breaking news was going to be about Trump, whatever the big connection to Russia was going to be about Trump, usually it completely fell apart in about 24 to 48 hours. So if you gave it 72 hours, then it would fall apart. And that's really how you have to do it. They just roll out one after the other of these hit pieces uh, on Republicans, these narrative pieces. And by the time the truth comes out, days later, they've already moved on to the next one. It's a, a cycle of really sort of panic, sort of uh, frenzy-driven media coverage. And that's the problem. I'm talking to Professor Bill Jacobson. You can find him at Legal Insurrection, which is great reading every day of the week. But tell me this, Professor, before we get to the question of uh, you know how this could get fixed and whether it's likely to get fixed, um, how did they get here to begin with? Because as a business, you'd think they would care an awful lot about maintaining their credibility, care less about keeping their politician friends happy, because if you lose your credibility, then your business goes down and all of the billions of dollars that are tied up in it go away as well. I mean, the media has a, a self-interest in trying to maintain its credibility, or does it? Well, I think more, particularly in the Internet age, things are driven by clicks and eyeballs and traffic. I think there's real pressures that come from that. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, who becomes journalists? It's not, you know, your average person. It's people who, for the most part, are ideologically driven and people who, for the most part, are left of center or far left. And that nobody else really, because journalism doesn't pay very well. You don't get paid a lot as a reporter. And so who's going to do this? It's people who are doing it for some other reason. In many ways, it's very similar to academia, that it's self-selecting. The people who go into academia and the people who go into journalism already have a particular viewpoint, and they view part of their job responsibility as to be activism and to be uh, persuasive and to be somebody who influences the public. So it's really a perverse circle and it's very dangerous, and it's at the point right now where yeah, I think the media is in crisis because it doesn't, it's lost its credibility. The traditional news media has lost its credibility, and they don't know what's there to replace it. Well, so tell me this, Professor. I've always been a big believer in the marketplace, that if there's a demand for something, that somebody will show up to supply it. And I'm talking about legal products, not illegal products like methamphetamine, although now it turns out we've got China to supply that as well, uh, uh, meth or fentanyl or whatever. But, but isn't there a marketplace hole there? You know, like, like the town that only has hamburger stands for fast food. And somebody says, hey, I'm going to go in and sell tacos. I'm going to sell them like crazy. That if the whole media landscape, for the most part, tilts to the left, pushes political agendas, and is not exactly honest, that it seems like that would be a tremendous opportunity for some actor to come in and supply a product that was both honest and trustworthy and perhaps a little right of center, which I thought Fox did, but they've drifted to the left as well. Uh, why isn't the marketplace working in the way it should to do that? Well, I think you have to look at different segments. I think the marketplace has 
created talk radio, which is wildly popular and mostly, not exclusively, but mostly is a, a right of center phenomenon. And then uh, you do have cable where, you know, people may be critical of Fox News that it's, it's, you know, moved either the center or the left. But as in the range of TV networks, it is clearly the most right of the mainstream TV networks, and it's doing far better than the, the liberal ones. So I think the uh, reality is that the market will reward that. And I think that's though also why you have this phenomenon of what's often called deplatforming or cancel culture. It is an attempt to prevent entrance into that marketplace. And the classic example, maybe the worst example, is Parler. Parler was an alternative to Twitter. It was growing hugely. We had more traffic at Legal Insurrection from Parler than we did from Twitter and Facebook combined. And the big tech companies conspired to take Parler down through the false accusation that the January 6th riot was organized on Parler. It wasn't. That's very clear. And so Google and Apple kicked them out of their app stores, which eliminates a huge market. And then Amazon Web Services kicked them off their hosting service with about 24 or 48 hours notice. And they essentially disappeared from the, the uh, Internet. And uh, Parler was a big challenger to Twitter. Everybody said, well, if you don't like the way Twitter runs its business, go create your own. Well, Parler did. And it just so happens, a very underreported fact, it was reported, that about a month before Amazon Web Services kicked out Parler, they struck a big hosting deal with Twitter. So Amazon Web Services eliminated one of Twitter's biggest competitors after having just struck a deal with Twitter to host uh, for the first time to host Twitter or parts of Twitter. So it's a very pernicious thing. So, yes, there is a marketplace for it. There are ideas. But that's why you have this phenomenon of deplatforming, which is trying to prevent people from becoming competitors. Okay, so let me ask you a question about the Twitter parlor thing. And I'll say we had a Twitter, we had a parlor account. We still have a Twitter account. I don't like Twitter very much. Um, But our parlor account just evaporated along with all the people who were following us on parlor. I liked parlor a lot. But what you just described sounds like a great antitrust case, doesn't it? Uh, Is somebody going to bring an antitrust case to say, hey, you you want you you struck a deal with Twitter and then you went out and destroyed one of Twitter's competitors. Uh, you know that that's that can't be legal, or is it? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd need to know more of it. Of course, Amazon Web Services would say one had nothing to do with the other, but it's just coincidence that one followed the other. Uh, and, and so, I, I think I don't know if Parler looked into that at all. I think they did sue Amazon Web Services. But, you know, when you sign on with these hosting companies and these cloud companies and you click that you've read the agreement, well, you know, those agreements are written to protect them. Okay, (laughs) they're not negotiable. So I think Amazon said, hey, we had a right to do it. Look at, you know, look at paragraph 432 sub A sub three. Okay, and we had the right to do it. So I don't know if that went anywhere, but uh, it was tremendously damaging. It is a parlor. It took them about two months to come back because when you have a user base of 10 million people or 20 million people, you can't just switch hosting companies. I mean, no, you can't. That's Bill Jacobson. He's a founder of the law blog, legal insurrection, clinical professor of law at Cornell law school. 
Professor, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your calls. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. One of the things that almost makes your head want to explode is hearing liberals talk about how black lives matter and how they're very concerned about the fate of people of color in this country. And then they tolerate the kind of crime rates, which for the most part, whether you like this statistic or not, for the most part, violent crime and crime in general hurts the poor the most. Now, I, I know that some of you may have heard that before. It's statistically the case. And, and why is that? Because an awful lot of criminals are themselves from poor communities, and who do they prey on? Well, you'd think if you watch movies that all the poor criminals go to the rich neighborhoods and they go after the rich people. Doesn't happen very often. What does happen is criminals go after the people living around them who are similarly or the same kind in the same neighborhood they're in. Uh, so I thought we'd talk with Giancarlo Canaparo, who's a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, about who exactly is being hurt by the high crime rates that we're seeing all across the country. Giancarlo, welcome back. Lars, thanks for having me. So uh, did anything I just say uh, cause you to say Lars is uh, is out of his mind on this and he's wrong? <laughs> well, Lars, you may be out of your mind, but not on this. Uh, okay. We have, uh, like you said, um, one of the things that we've seen, so the FBI just released their uh, 2020 crime data. Now, they're always about a year and a half behind. But what I was able to do with that data is go back to the last, 10 years and look at trends in uh, crime in absolute numbers, and but more specifically at who is uh, making up the, the various percentages of the total victims of crime. So what we see looking at the FBI crime data right off the bat is that crime is way up over the last 10 years. Violent crimes and murders are up by at least 100 uh, percent, maybe more. Uh, the FBI crime data is incomplete, uh, so whatever numbers you get from there, the true numbers are actually much higher. But at the very least, we're looking at about a 100% increase in violent crimes, maybe even a 200% increase in terms of murders. And what we see over time is that those crimes fall more heavily on black communities than anyone else. Uh, not only in absolute terms, but over the last 10 years, what we've seen is that as a percentage of total victims, black people represent a higher and higher share. So in 2011, uh, black people were uh, uh, represented uh, about, uh, let's see, where are my numbers here? Um, that happens to me, too. About yeah, but, well, they represented about 40% of all murder victims. Uh, that number has risen to about 43%. Uh, with violent crime, we see similar rises. So they represent about 3% more victims now than they did in 2011. Uh, now, 3% might not sound like a lot, but remember, we're talking about a 100% increase in crime falling on a population that is at most about 14% of the total U.S. population. So when we're talking about millions and millions of violent crimes falling on this very small percentage of the population, and they represent, again, about half of all violent crime victims and more than half 
uh, of murder victims. It's, it's astonishing how much damage is being done to this community uh, by the increase in crime. Now, Democrats will love to say, like you said, that uh, aggressive enforcement of crime uh, is racist because uh, it captures more black people uh, and puts them in prison. Well, two responses to that. Number one, the other side of the crime equation that I see from the FBI data is that black people are committing also a higher percentage of violent crimes and murder in a big way. And, and not, not right, just a little bit, but John Carlo, I, I looked up the most recent numbers I could get were 19, but it said that of all the homicides in America, uh, over 50% of them are committed by black citizens, uh, black Americans. And you say, well, okay. Correct. Yeah, 54%. And since most of the murders are committed by men, men aren't, four, you know, black men are not 14% of the population. They're 7% of the population. And yet they're committing right. that, you know, in other words, they're, they're overrepresented to the tune of about 700%, seven times as many as, as, they, as their representation of the public. And then you say, well, who are they killing? Now, uh, people would have you believe, well, this is just white people worried about this. Ninety percent of the victims of black criminal, black homicide, black murderers are black people. They're, they're innocent, well, in many cases, innocent black people who are murdered by other black people. And you say, so if you care about, you know, black lives mattering or all lives mattering, which is what I believe in, you say, well, let's stop the murders. Well, no, no, then we'd have to arrest a lot of black people and, and the numbers would look bad for us. So out of political correctness... We're going to let a, a lot of black citizens be murdered by pr primarily by other black citizens? Right. What it comes down to is that, frankly, aggressive enforcement of violent crime benefits the black community the most. So when we saw this defund the police movement, when we saw politicians pull back law enforcement, and when we see uh, rogue prosecutors refuse to enforce uh, what they call uh, quality-of-life crimes— who does that hurt the most? Black communities. Giancarlo Canaparo is at the Heritage Foundation, and you've got the Radio Northwest Network.